0: Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we need your help this morning. I need your help. These people need you. There is no greater pursuit in the life of man than to pursue the heart of the living God, to pursue your character to seek to grasp a hold of your essence, what it is that makes you who you are and who we are to be in you. This is a noble, high, sacred calling to proclaim the Word of God. And Lord, I would entreat you this morning to lay it upon the heart of everyone here, the conviction that the proclamation of the Word of God is not reserved for preachers, teachers pastors but that it is our solemn responsibility every one of us as followers of Christ help me this morning Lord please purge me of the sickening pride that is so prevalent always crouching at the door help me to be clear Help your word to unfold accurately and persuasively so that people might see you clearly. I ask for these dear ones, my brothers and sisters in Christ, to receive the word of God with joy, deeply implanted into the very morrow of their soul. For your honor, for your glory, for the exaltation of Jesus Christ, the name above all names, the King above all kings. Amen. To be fair, much of the Bible is not systematically evil, but just plain weird, as you would expect of a chaotically cobbled together anthology of disjointed documents, composed, revised, translated, distorted, and improved by hundreds of anonymous authors, editors, and copyists, unknown to us, and mostly unknown to each other, spanning nine centuries. That's a sobering statement. I trust it got your attention. It was written by a man named Richard Dawkins. If you're not familiar with Dawkins, he is an English evolutionary biologist. He's what I would consider one of the leading architects of the modern atheistic, humanistic machine that has as its sole purpose to discredit the Word of God, to cast into doubt not only faith, or trust in Christ and God, his Father, but even the very existence of God. This would be Dawkins' goal. And I start off with his quote this morning, not to draw attention to Dawkins, but to suggest to you that his work is succeeding in our culture today. The Gallup poll, company started by George Gallup. In 2017, they did a poll, and they found that 47% of Americans, our neighbors, believe that the Bible is full of fables and legends. They conducted the same poll in the early 90s, same question, and only 14% of the respondents said that. So in the 25 years between those two questions being asked, the number of people who think that this word of God that we hold so dear is full of fables, myths, stories, made-up legends that's completely irrelevant for our day and time, That number has more than tripled. And that's the culture that we live in. That's the culture that we face. What is one of the prime charges that these folks would level against the Word of God? That it's full of errors. That's exactly what Dawkins was saying. Why wouldn't we expect, he says, the Word of God to be full of holes? It was written by a bunch of different anonymous authors, not connected by anything. Certainly no superintending divine author who orchestrated all of their thoughts to produce exactly what he wanted. That certainly was not the case. Rather, it's the work of men, chaotically cobbled together, he says, disjointed, edited, corrected, mistaken. That's exactly what they think of the Word of God. And what are we to say in the face of such opposition? Is it sufficient? That we, within the walls of this building, I hope we all, hold to the sufficiency of the Scriptures. Is that enough? It may be enough for us, for our life, but it is woefully inadequate in terms of engaging our culture. Jonathan Edwards, the great American preacher, said, resolved when I think of any theorem in divinity to be solved, immediately to do what I can towards solving it if circumstances do not hinder. Any problem that arose that Jonathan Edwards was having trouble tackling, he convinced himself, he resolved to immediately try to figure it out and work it out. And we need to be honest about the fact that at first glance, this book, we may hold that it is perfectly inerrant, but at first glance, it does sometimes appear to be problematic, doesn't it? There are sections of Scripture that don't seem to jive with each other, that don't seem to match up, that don't seem to even agree with each other. They seem to flat out blatantly contradict each other. And I'm convinced and I'd like to persuade you that we need to be diligent students of the word of God. Carefully studying. 2 Timothy 2.15 says to to apply yourself to be adequate before the Lord. Rightly handling the, the word of truth accurately. That's the kind of Christians we need to be. When we come across a passage of scripture that's difficult to wrap our heads around... We need to take the time and the effort and the mental gymnastics necessary to figure it out as best we can. Lean on other Christians, read commentaries, whatever we've got to do. And it's in that context, that little bit of introduction, that I want to draw your attention to the epistle to the Hebrews this morning. I'd invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. And while you're turning there, I just want to give you a a little bit of a context of what's going on in this letter. The author of Hebrews has, as his sole purpose in writing this letter, to conclusively prove the superiority of Christ and the new covenant in his blood to the previous system of the Levitical priesthood, which he replaced, and the Mosaic covenant, which he superseded. He does this a number of ways. He tells us that Christ is superior to the angels, let alone to us. He says that Christ is like us. He was made in the image of man. Therefore, he is eligible to be our perfect high priest because he understands us like no one ever has. He says that Christ's priesthood is greater than Aaron's because Christ's priesthood has a better minister to perform it, it has a better ministry to accompany it, and it has a better covenant backing it. Now here's the thing though. This letter was written to the Jews, to the Hebrews. It was written to a people steeped In 1,500 years, 1,500 years of culture and tradition and heritage, people who were not going to simply accept at face value claims of the superiority of Christ, which was going to do away with some of the the commandments and the statutes and the stipulations that they grew up with, he knew, this author, knew that he needed to provide some evidence. He needed to systematically and exhaustively detail This is how the Levitical priesthood and the Mosaic Covenant did things. This is how Christ does things now. And this is why Christ is better. And it's in that context, that framework, that we come to Hebrews chapter 9. What you're going to see in the first five verses of this chapter is a detailed description of the tabernacle. This was the tent of meeting that God instructed Moses to have made in the wilderness as they were journeying from Egypt to Canaan. And this was the meeting place. That's why they call it the tent of meeting. This was where the Hebrews came to meet with God. This was where God's very presence, his Shekinah glory, the incarnate image of his glory prior to Christ, came and resided in this tent of meeting. As Dave read for you earlier, the requirements were exacting. They were rigid. They were strict. And they were punishable by death sometimes for infractions. So this is the tabernacle. Let's read how the author of Hebrews describes it. Verse 1 of chapter 9. Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil there was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies. Having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. Verse 5, And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. I think it will be helpful, and you see it on the screen already, to look at a diagram of the tabernacle, to sort of put these things in order. This is how the author of Hebrews is describing the situation for us you'll see the overall rectangle is the entire courtyard of the tent. Outside is the, the, the uh, bronze altar of sacrifice and the brazen the laver where they would wash their hands. The smaller rectangle is the actual tent of meeting. It's a rectangular structure composed of two compartments of equal size. Now, the description that we have here in Hebrews, it shows the lampstand and the, bre- the table containing the bread of the presence in the first compartment. The bread of the presence was just bread. It was consecrated bread that God gave a special recipe for and he gave a special oil to anoint it with and it was to be kept in the tabernacle at all times for the priest to eat. Very simple function so they didn't go hungry as they were performing their duties. That's the bread of the presence. According to the author of Hebrews, the inner compartment, the Holy of Holies, contains the Ark of the Covenant and the altar of incense, the golden altar of incense. Okay? Here's the problem. That's not correct. That is wrong. That is in contradiction, apparently, to the account of in Exodus chapter 30 where God describes to Moses exactly how to make the tabernacle. Go ahead and turn with me because I want you to see the the issue, the problem that I want us to wrestle with this morning. Exodus chapter 30, verse 6. This is God giving Moses the specific instructions for this golden altar of incense. And he says in verse 6, You shall put this altar in front of the veil that is near the Ark of the Testimony. I didn't mention that. The tabernacle was divided by a veil, a thick, heavy curtain which divided the outer compartment from the inner compartment, a little bit of a shield or a wall between the presence of God and the physical presence of the priests. That's the veil. So God tells Moses, you shall put this altar in front of the veil that is near the Ark of the Testimony in front of the mercy seat that is over the Ark of the Testimony, where I will meet with you. So God told Moses not to put the golden altar of incense inside the Holy of Holies, but as you see on the screen, in front of the veil, in the holy place. Let me show you the contrast. That's what the author of Hebrews described, apparently. And that's what God described to Moses in Exodus 30. And so my question is hopefully rather obvious. What in the world do we do with this? How do we resolve this apparent discrepancy? This contradiction, apparent contradiction, supposed contradiction, between Hebrews 9.4 and Exodus 36. Now, to get at this, we're going to have to do a little bit of detective work. Okay, We're going to have to go dip our toes in the waters of the original languages a little bit. And it's going to get just slightly technical, but I want you to bear with me because I'm convinced that the payoff is going to be worth it. And by God's grace, I'll explain it in a way that makes sense. First of all... The issue comes down to one of translation. How do we translate a particular Greek word? Thumiasterion. It's on the screen behind me. Thumiasterion. How do we translate it? What I read in Hebrews 9.4 was altar of incense. That's the English rendering in the NASB of that word, Thumiasterion. If anybody here happens to have a King James version of the Bible, you didn't read altar of incense if you were reading along with me. You read something completely different. You read the word censor. So, the KJV translates this word, Thumyasterion, as censor. Every other major modern English translation renders it as altar of incense. Which is correct. Why the discrepancy? Do these translators not know what they were doing? Well, let's break it down and look at them one at a time. The problem with rendering it as altar of incense is apparent, Right? because that appears to present a contradiction with Exodus 36. That's a problem. So I want to set that one aside for a moment, and let's examine the validity, the legitimacy of translating that word as censor. First of all, I want to admit to you that it is a legitimate solution. That word, thumiosterion it does have two valid definitions. One is censor, one is altar of incense. And if you don't know what a censor is, it's a fire pan. That's another word for it. Uh, if you had a fire in the ancient world and you needed to transport the heat, the flame from that fire to another location, either for light or you needed warmth or you needed to start a second fire, what you would do, you can't transport the whole fire, so you would take a fire pan, which was a little metal bowl suspended by chains, you hold it in the hand, you would gather some hot coals off the fire, dump it in your fire pan and then trot over with it to wherever you needed the fire. Okay, that's a fire pan, that's a sensor. That's a legitimate translation, so it could be right. However, there are some difficulties with it. There are some problems with it that I want to address, that why I don't think censor is the correct translation. First of all, it's, it's very infrequently used, this word, Thumyasterian. That's why it's a problem to translate. It only shows up here in Hebrews 9.4. That's the only place we find the word in the New Testament. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was originally written in Hebrew, in the Septuagint, it only shows up twice out of all the Old Testament. So we have very little biblical context with which to get an idea of what in the world this word means. Furthermore, if we turn to extra-biblical sources to try to get a handle on it, that doesn't help much either because they're all over the map too. Herodotus, a Greek historian, he uses Thumaeisterian as censor. Well, Philo... A Jewish philosopher, he uses it as altar of incense. Josephus, the great Jewish historian, he uses it both ways. So we're we're left without a a help here. It seems to be that that both translations are valid. So how do we answer this? Well, as I said, uh, censor, it is the way that it is used some places in the Bible. One example would be 2 Chronicles 26, 19. Again, this is in the Greek Old Testament. Don't turn there. It says, but Uzziah with a censer in his hand for burning incense. Clearly, the context is he's holding something in his hand, something portable to burn incense on. Clearly, the author there who was translating the Hebrew Scriptures, he meant censer. Ezekiel 8, 11 is the other place it appears. And again, as I said, it does present us with a clear and obvious solution to our problem in Hebrews 9, 4. But, but... I think there's some problems with rendering it that way, and I want to go through those briefly. First of all, the high priest censer that he used on the Day of Atonement that Dave read for us earlier, it was not golden. Or at least, God does not specify that it is golden. We read in Hebrews 9.4, within the veil, within the Holy of Holies, it having a golden altar of incense. But God never told Moses to make that censer out of gold. In fact, he doesn't specify the material for it at all. He does specify the utensils for the bronze altar out in the courtyard and they were to be made out of bronze just like that altar. But he never says what the high priest's censer was to be made of. So I would suggest to you that probably the high priest used the bronze one from the courtyard because that was what was available. It is true that Solomon had a golden censer constructed for the temple, the first temple, but that's the temple. That's not the tabernacle. That was 400 and some years later. Secondly, So the high priest censor is not described as gold. And secondly, I think it's unlikely that the author of Hebrews, a man clearly steeped in the Jewish religion, writing to the Jews, trying to convince them, as I said, of the superiority of Christ to their system, I think it's unlikely that he would have omitted one of the critical pieces of furniture within the tabernacle. How much credibility would he have had if he mentioned the lampstand, the bread of the presence, the Ark of the Covenant, and completely failed to mention the altar of incense? So if you render Thumiasterion as censor, you eliminate the conflict with Exodus 36, but you produce something that's not very credible, that he wouldn't have mentioned the altar of incense. Thirdly, if he was going to refer to a censor, a firepan, there's a much better word that he could have used for it, which he didn't. It's the word purion in Greek. It's, it's another word, a synonym for censor, And that's the one that he probably would have used most likely if he was meaning a firepan. So I think that it's not likely that he would have used sen- or he would have had in mind the word censor here, both because Aaron's censor was not described as golden, uh, also because it's not likely that he would have forgotten to mention the altar of incense, and thirdly because he, there's a much better word to use than Thumyasterium. Long story short, I don't think censor is the right translation. I do think the KJV translators got it wrong. And that's okay. They were just men. There's not, I'm not knocking that translation. I just think in this case they got the wrong answer. But that still leaves us with our problem, doesn't it? How are we to understand that the Holy of Holies has the altar of incense in it if it didn't? Hang with me. We're almost there. I want to dig just a little bit deeper, and I think we'll hit Pater. If we dig into the root of both of these words, purion and thumiesterion, the two synonyms for censor, I think we'll find something fascinating. One is that the root of purion is pure, which just means fire. Easy enough. It's a noun. And from that base word pure, you get the word purion, which means censor, something to hold fire. Okay? Thumiosterion, on the other hand, is a derivative of a verb, not a noun. Thumiao, meaning the action of burning incense. Okay, so Thumiasterion comes from Thumiao. So the author is deliberately using a word that gives us the idea of what is being done with the altar, with this object. He's drawing attention, I think, not to the physical location within the tent of meeting, but rather to its practical use. So I think what he's saying is, the golden altar of incense is attached, is associated with, is for the Holy of Holies. He's not saying it was actually sitting in there. I think what he's saying is, its use was for the Holy of Holies. Now, if I'm right, that raises, I think, a fascinating question. And here's where it starts to really get interesting. I hope you've hung with me so far. I told you it was going to be a little technical. Now we hit the pay dirt. What was the purpose of burning incense? We all, I mean, many of us know that the priests were supposed to burn incense. There's a golden altar of incense. You burn incense on it. We know that. But what was the function? What was the point? Was it simply another uh, uh, procedure that God required his priests to go through? Or was there actually a practical point that God was trying to make? I would suggest to you that there was. To see this, I want to look at a couple of different clues. Turn back to Exodus with me. Or if you're already there, stay there. Exodus chapter 30 once again. And this time we're going to look at verse 8 a couple of clues as to why God had his priests, his Levitical priests, so concerned with incense. Exodus 30, verse 8. When Aaron trims the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense. There shall be perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. So the Lord says, Aaron, high priest, every evening I want you to burn incense. You are never to let this flame go out. You are never to allow the condition to exist wherein inside my tabernacle there is not a cloud of incense hovering in the air. It is to be there all the time. Don't forget this. That's clue number one. For clue number two, let's turn to Leviticus chapter 16. Again, this is the passage that Dave read for us earlier. And this is describing the Day of Atonement, which I haven't mentioned much about yet. The Day of Atonement was a special day once per year when the high priest of the Lord would make a special atoning sacrifice on behalf of himself, on behalf of the tent of meeting, on behalf of the people, the nation, atoning for their sins. There was, it, It's rigid. You, you, Dave read it. It was long. It seemed to go on forever, didn't it? An t- exacting series of 20 steps in sequence that the high priest had to follow exactly with attention to detail. There's only two instances in that passage where the Lord threatens death to his high priests if they fail to obey him. The first is in verse 2. Leviticus 16, verse 2. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark or he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. So, you have a tent of meeting, the priests are to keep incense burning on it all the time, this cloud of sweet-smelling fragrance in the air. The priest is never, ever, ever to step inside the veil into the most holy place where the Lord's presence resides, unless he's invited on pain of death. Okay? Now, skip down to verse 12. Leviticus sixteen twelve. He, meaning the high priest, shall take a fire pan, that's our word censer, full of coals of fire from upon the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of finely ground sweet incense, and bring it inside the veil. He shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the ark of the testimony, otherwise he will die. So not only, high priest, are you to keep incense in the air at all times, within the tent of meeting, not only are you to never step foot inside my special inner sanctum where my holy presence resides without being invited or I will strike you dead, but when you do come inside, when I've invited you, make sure you bring this cloud of incense with you surrounding you. Do you see the picture that's emerging here? The, the image that I think God is trying to communicate to his people. To put it crudely, high priest... Levites, Hebrews, Americans, you stink. Literally to high heaven. I will not tolerate the stench of your sin. I will not tolerate the filth of the sin that covers you like a skim of slime after you swam in a swamp. it's, it's, it's a repugnant stench to me. It repulses me. You must have incense around you at all times when you come into my presence because if I smell you, you're dead. That's the image that I think God is trying to communicate to his priests. Throughout Scripture, we see the Lord, even though he has no physical form, even though he doesn't have a body, he communicates himself to us in a way that we can understand better. By referring to himself with eyes that can see man's wickedness. Or ears that do not hear the prayers of the wicked. Or, as I've already pointed out, a nose that smells man's stench. This is particularly poignant in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 65, if you would like to turn there. In the first few verses, the Lord does a really remarkable job of just skewering the wickedness of his people. Isaiah 65 in, I'm not going to read the whole passage, it's all the way to verse 5. But in verse 2, he calls his people a rebellious people. In verse 3, he says there are people who continually provoke him to his face. In verse 4, he says they sit among graves, the rottenness of the dead. They eat swine's flesh. The broth of unclean meat is in their pots. And then in verse 5, he says, these these people are a smoke in my nostrils. A fire that burns all the day. Here's the image. These rebellious, wicked, sinful people, just like us, are like a searing, acrid smoke that that sears the tender flesh on the inside of God's nose if he had one. That's the image that he's communicating to his people. On the flip side, he says, You may, you sometimes are able to present a pleasing aroma to me. That was one of the purposes of the sacrificial system. Noah, in Genesis 8, he makes a sacrifice to the Lord. He comes out of the ark, he builds an altar, sacrifices some of every unclean animal, and the Lord says that he smelled the soothing aroma and determined in his heart never again to curse the ground on account of man's wickedness. Conversely, in Leviticus chapter 26, he says, if you rebel against my commands, I will not smell your soothing aromas and all the sacrifices that you offer up. They're pointless if you're walking in rebellion. Now, folks, here's the money. The striking, earth-shattering contrast is in the person of Jesus Christ. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. This is so poignant, the way Paul puts this. And you really need to see this one. Ephesians chapter 5. I'll start in verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love... Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Christ is the sweetest smelling fragrance in the universe. He doesn't need a cloud of incense to surround him, to mask his filth, his stench from the nostrils of God, because he is perfect righteousness. That's the point that the author of Hebrews is trying to make. Again, remember, his his overarching goal, his incessant drive is to show the superiority of Christ to what has come before. I think that's why he uses a a non-standard word in Hebrews 9.4 to communicate not where the altar of incense was physically located, but to draw attention in the Hebrews' minds to what it was for and the fact that they don't need that anymore. You know... I think that the Jews have an advantage over us. Scripture is clear that we have some advantages over them. It's sometimes easier for us to believe because we don't have that 3,500 year old history of tradition and rich culture and heritage. However, they are going to understand this concept in a way that we never can. They who were steeped from a young age, indoctrinated into the reality that you don't enter the presence of God without being very careful, unless you're invited, and if you do it wrong, you're dead. We, we may know that intellectually, but because that's not our culture, I don't think we appreciate it as much as we ought to. I, I, I love that Dave mentioned when he came up here to read Scripture that he was just struck by the awful Wonderful majesty of what Christ did on the cross for us. And sometimes we fail to appreciate that. Do you understand what it meant that when Christ died, this thick, heavy veil of the temple was ripped in half? Do you understand the significance of what it means that Christ can approach the presence of God at all times, whenever He feels like it, on His own timetable? Because He is the perfect righteousness of God. Do you understand that if you're sitting here apart from Christ, you're under the same threat of death that the Levites were? You may not approach the presence of God. You stand naked and unprotected before the full fury of a holy God that will not tolerate the presence of sin. I would say this is just... A me-ism, but I would suggest to you that God didn't even have to do anything to kill the, the high priest if he came uninvited. I think his, the holiness of his presence just reacted against sin and wiped it out like matter and antimatter. Now that's just me, that's not necessarily biblical, so take it with a grain of salt. But do you understand what you've been given in Christ, Christian? Have you ever thought about how ridiculous it is? That the omnipotent creator God of the universe gives you the privilege of setting your timetable of when you're going to approach him in prayer. How ridiculous is that? He's the king, not you. He's the overlord. You're the vassal. How amazing that we can, anytime we feel like it, stop and pray and God will hear us. Christ is standing before his bench, his judgment seat, his throne. Arguing for us. Arguing on our behalf. Telling God, I took their penalty. They're not guilty. Are you taking advantage of that divine access? I don't as often as I should. Are you capitalizing... Upon the work of Christ. If you are united with Christ. Are you capitalizing upon that. And living a life that is ministry oriented. That is others oriented. That's exactly what Christ's ministry was about. If you're in him. If you are one with him in some mysterious way. There is no choice but for you to be others oriented as well. To be living your life exclusively for someone else that is completely countercultural we live in a culture that is dominated by the self selfies a culture where the individual is not just their own person the individual is not just the king or the queen but the individual is god i the culture says i will dictate my own belief system my own preferences in life That's completely antithetical to the Christian life. And I I fear, folks, I feel it in myself, I fear it in others. I'll just be blunt. When I see how poorly some of our events are attended, when I see how poorly we're represented, I fear that, that we're allowing the culture to dictate how we live for Christ. There is no other choice than to be united with the body of Christ and live a life of service. Are you? Are you? Sometimes I don't, and it worries me. Are we taking for granted what Christ has done? This access that He has given us to the throne of God. My friend, if you are here this morning without Christ, please turn. You're playing with fire. Literally. <laughs> you're, you're, you, it's as if you're walking beside the Grand Canyon staring up into the sky, looking at the birds, whistling into the wind, completely oblivious to the thousand foot drop to your right or left. Turn to Christ. Be united with Christ. Live a life that is not focused upon you and your needs and your problems, but focused on others. I'll I'll tell you something. I have found no greater antidote for me, all the problems of me, all the selfishness of me, I've found no greater antidote in my life than ministering to others. Getting into someone else's life and tackling their problems. It's amazing how my own problems just fade into insignificance when I start focusing on other people's problems and trying to use the scriptures to help them and apply God's truth to them. I I would want you all to experience that joy. Let's pray. Oh God, help us. We stand to be such victorious people. We stand to be a people that lives triumphantly, joyfully, united with the person of Jesus Christ our Savior, the living God. And Lord, we have confidence that you, even if We are faithless at times, even if we blow it, even if we take you for granted. You are faithful. You cannot deny your own nature. You cannot be anything but faithful to us. You are not a harsh, unloving, disciplinarian of a father who threatens us with swift punishment when we disobey. But rather, you are a loving father who has adopted us into your family. And you do expect obedience, Lord, but you continually, constantly reassure us of your love, even in the face of our failure. That's who you are. And that's who we are united to. I ask you, Lord, may this message this morning not be a message of, of depression or, or anxiety or fear, but rather a catalyst to action. May we appreciate what Christ has done for us as the author of Hebrews so brilliantly lays out. May we appreciate the access that we've been given to the throne of God. May we be thankful for the fact that we don't have to go through a high priest. We don't have to worry about incense. We don't have to worry about regulations and sacrifices and slaughter and uncleanness. May we be thankful and may that galvanize us to lives of others-oriented ministry focus. Lord, there is only one reason to do this. It's for your honor and glory. The purpose of us ministering to others is so that your kingdom will be established on earth one day. And we are preparing the way. We are sowing the fe- the seed in the fields of the kingdom of God. This was the Lord Jesus' message Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The Jews rejected him, so the kingdom was delayed, but it's still coming. May we be preparing for it each and every day by living lives wholeheartedly, zealously devoted to our Savior. May we be oddly countercultural in that we are not focused upon ourselves but upon others. And may you gain glory and honor and joy, delight, satisfaction in us this day and in every day to come. Lord, you are so good. You are so amazing. And sometimes, Father, oh, we don't even scratch the surface of your goodness. But it's here. It's here in the Scriptures. Help us to dive into them. Help us to be diligent, to study, to be approved before you, rightly, accurately handling the word of truth. May we be scholars And evangelists at the same time. Living triumphantly for Christ. In his name I pray. Amen.